0: Apple presents events at the Apple Store.
1: On stage, we'll welcome our moderator, Kelly Hoey, CMO of Curio.com.
0: Good evening. Uh, It's great to be back here at the Apple Store. I'm Kelly Hoey. I'm the chief marketing officer of Curio, and someone in the audience just said, nice shirt. And I figured... A t-shirt from Franklin Barbecue, based in Austin, which I picked up during South by Southwest, was the perfect attire for a conversation on food and tech. Um, So we've got to, there's probably too many things to cover tonight. We're going to try and do as much as we can. We're going to leave time for questions, because I know everyone here has probably got questions. And that's why they're here and want to hear these folks. So let's just jump to it. Um, To my immediate left. Danielle, who is the founder and CEO of Food and Tech Connect, um, and is also a founding member of the Culinary Institute of America Sustainable Business Leadership Council, uh, and a member of Google Innovation Lab for Food Experiences. How did you get into this world, Danielle, of food and tech and being the, the hub and source and information and connector for all things food and tech? Um, well... About four years ago, I was working for a company called Bright
2: Farm Systems and I was doing PR and business development and we, I was using Twitter um, and started noticing that people were sharing a lot of information online that we didn't have access to as a company. So things like prices paid to producers, So sorry to explain the company Bright Farm Systems, we uh, were consultants for rooftop greenhouses. And so people would come to us and have us plan out what a rooftop greenhouse would look like and what their business model would be and how much they could make from putting a greenhouse on their rooftop. So I saw that people were sharing all this information openly on Twitter, on Facebook, on listservs. And so I started thinking about big data and food. How could we scrape all this data together to get a better real-time picture of what's going on? And you know, I called it, I set out to build, I wanted to build the the smart grid for food. I started with a a blog um, and started writing about these ideas, and people kind of crawled out of the woodworks and told me what they were working on. At the time, there were about 50 organizations that were really thinking about food and data and um, and technology, but it's kind of exploded over the last couple of years. To date, I mean, from what we can tell, there are over 3,000 companies in the space. Um, and so it's been really exciting to be able to catalog that and to create events to uh, connect people. And we're on to new and better things now.
0: And, I'm sorry, you were right, uh, right timing, uh, right? Your yeah. interest, your passion, and the, the cusp of, of food and technology. Um, to Danielle's left, Alan, who is the former co-president and CEO of the Manischewitz Company, a serial entrepreneur, an active early-stage angel investment, um, and you started off as an investment banker focused on the food and beverage industry right done okay <laughs> thanks kelly that 's it um, so what uh, you know so sort Ellen, of, thinking about your interest in all this, did it just sort of happen that you you started as investment banker in food and beverage and thought this is kind of interesting, Let me keep following this this path like. Tell us your your, well, your career journey that leads you as now I would say probably one of the most important early stage investors in this in this space.
1: Well, the uh, the the secret uh, ambition of every investment banker is to be a client. So I left investment banking and uh, started buying uh, food companies uh, with a partner, and then I became, despite myself, an operator because. Uh, Uh, the investments weren't going the way we wanted and had to get get involved and started getting very operationally uh, uh, involved. And I was still very involved in tech uh, early stage investing. And then maybe two, three years ago, I started seeing the food world and the tech world starting to get closer and closer and closer. And I said, wow, this is pretty interesting. I know quite a bit about this side of the equation. I know quite a bit about that side of the equation. And there were very few people that uh, were, were looking at it. All the people in the food world, uh, when there was a deal or something that was, uh, had a little bit of tech, they just didn't understand the, the, the pricing, the valuation, the, the scaling issues. And on the tech side, the people would look at food and they would say, well, that's food. That's, that's, that's never gonna work in the tech world. And so I, I had a little bit of an inkling and I started looking at it more seriously and, and, and investing in that space.
0: And we're glad you are. Thank you. (laughs) And down at the end, Chris, um, who is the CEO and founder of Kitchen Surfing. I'm going to let you tell everyone what it is. And you have an interesting juxtaposition between your past life as head of products at Mobile Commons, uh, a mobile advocacy and fundraising platform, uh, and uh, being a partner in a couple of restaurants.
3: So... uh, I guess kitchen surfing is what happens when you start getting involved in food and you come from a technology background, <laughs> um, which is you look at some existing landscape and you say, well, if I were to redo all of this right now, what would it look like? And for kitchen surfing, what that was, was looking at restaurants, looking at catering, looking at the fact that restaurants are actually a kind of new concept in the course of human history. They're only a couple hundred years old. They started just after the French Revolution and saying, hey, there's all these people that work there that are really talented. The world is trending towards this place where people are building their own businesses. What would it look like if you reimagined the world with all these people that like to cook, but maybe restaurants didn't exist? How would they support themselves? What would that look like? And what would the technology be that would kind of make all those pieces fit together?
0: Very cool. So before we talk about all these trends, I think you've hit on a couple, Chris, with your... um your introduction of yourself in terms of the collaborative economy and mobile. Um, I want to kind of define the world that we're talking about, and I'm looking at you, Danielle. So what are we talking about with food and tech? There, you know, There's agriculture, there's consumer packaged goods, retail, restaurants, cooking, health. Define this world of food and tech for us. Well, it's a little bit of a, a contentious topic. So the way that I define
2: food tech is information, technology, and hardware that's being used across the supply chain. So anything from farm management software to restaurant management software to um, marketing for for um, s- small entrepreneurs to uh, wearables to consumer-facing um, health and recipe apps. So. It really runs the gamut. Um, there is a there are a lot of people that um, also include uh, meat substitutes and, and a lot of the new um, foods like uh, Beyond Meat and um, and Hampton Creek Foods. We don't we don't con- include that in our in our um, definition of food tech, but some people do.
1: And I sort of nuanced that same same concept, but just with a nuance. Of using technology to either add efficiency or disrupt uh, the different facets of the food and food world, which, as uh, many of you probably know, is a huge, huge part of the economy. It's about uh, a, a 1.7 trillion, depending on you know who's counting, but it's a huge, huge part of uh, of, of the industrial world. So there's a lot of disrupting. And um, when I start, first started looking at this, when Danielle first started looking at this, you had to sort of like go out and, and seek the deals today. And the companies, today it's the opposite. Today there's like every time you turn around, there's something new, which makes sense because it's a lot more mature industry. It's a huge, huge industry. So there's a lot, a lot uh, uh, going on simply by the magnitude of, uh, of, of the space.
0: Is it one of the last ones to really get... Hit with some of the the I'm going to say the wave of technology and, and disruption, and I'm thinking somewhat in some ways, Danielle, of your um, meat hack, the hackathon you had about when was it about a year and a half ago? A year ago. Yeah. Y- year year ago, and and you know, hearing about the problems of, or the, I'm going to say the challenges. Better way of putting it, the challenges in Vermont between family farms and. Um, uh, processors. Yeah, the, 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 the processors um and the you know kind of done with pen and pencil and a telephone um and not and looking for technology solutions. Is it is it is it, is it because food is kind of later to the game or what do you kind of attribute that to
2: uh yeah food is definitely later to the game. I mean it's always been so food's been a mom and pop um, industry, although there's been a lot of centralization and there are a lot of um, corporations that that, um, that run, con, I mean, consolidation, not centralization, consolidation for a lot of corporations that run the food industry. But most people do things on pen and paper a, and have done it that way. And that's because that's what they've always done. Um, they don't necessarily have access to computers or to Wi-Fi. Um, and the other thing is that the food industry, people are actually, they're in the, field. They're in the kitchen. So they, until mobile became, you know, so um, prevalent, people didn't, weren't sitting in front of their computers. Um, but that's changing rapidly. And when I started doing this, we had, there was a lot of, of uh, aversion to technology. I mean, in. In the industrial food system, there's a lot of technology adoption, but for smaller restaurants, for farms, there was you know, a big aversion because people also think of technology when you think of food as something that kind of sold you down the river. You know, people think of biotechnology. So you know, they, they saw it as something that was potentially um, very negative, but that's changing really quickly.
0: I was, I was in a diner on Sunday and they had uh, paper receipts and a cash register. There was something charming about it, but at the same time, it was, it was highly amusing. Chris, I see you like microphone in hand I, on th- no, th- well, thoughts I mean, on this. I, I, I Jump one, in.
3: I think that one of the things that's really interesting about the food space is that it, food is perishable, right? And that's like kind of fundamentally what makes it so hard is that you've got something, that, like you take delivery of it, and then it goes bad if you can't sell it. And I think you know, it's no accident that Amazon started off selling books right? You can put them in a warehouse, nothing happens. You can sell them five years later, it's great. And, you know, if you look at kind of like the e-commerce penetration by category, food is so far behind everything else. You know, people still don't really buy that much food online. And and it's because it's perishable. And people are just beginning to kind of crack some some of these problems from the technology side. And, you know, I also think the mobile thing is a big deal, which is kitchen surfing couldn't have existed five years ago. Right? Like without having all of our chefs that have iPhones, kitchen surfing just couldn't have happened. And, and it's only that you know, they now have access to communications when they're kind of out and about going through their daily business that um, kitchen surfing can even work where you kind of put like a connective layer across the whole market and kind of see what happens.
1: So j- just a uh, segue from uh, what Chris was saying. There's a couple, the way I see it, there's a couple of different waves that are happening. The first is that you know everybody is now walking around with a supercomputer in their pocket. Second, people are now completely open to ordering uh, things online. I always go up to people and say, so what would you not order online? And, and now people order online. There's no, there's no aversion to it, including food. And, uh, and food... In the last couple years, it's been, it's been building up, but you know, food is something that people are more and more conscious of. They wanna be connected to it. People are, want better food and all of a sudden, the combination of having the ability to communicate uh, directly with makers and with uh, the people that are making the food and, uh, um, uh, and wanting that food is creating a huge market. And the final leg is a whole wave of entrepreneurs like Chris, that basically see the opportunities he, and, uh, and said, wait a minute, there's something to be done here. Technology to build businesses is cheaper and cheaper, and the three things together are creating a tidal wave.
0: Oh, huge. Like, what was it? A $300 million tidal wave in the first quarter of this year in terms of investment in, in food, tech.
2: Yes, and then, what was, uh, well, last and year, was it last year? Food tech media. So that's not including yeah, agriculture.
0: Okay. Yeah, th- yeah, but it was like 300 million in the in the first quarter of this year. Yes. And I forget what the number was for last um, year. It
2: was 1.6 uh, billion last year for food tech media, and um, in 2012 it was uh, 1.2 billion. So it's uh, it's rising pretty quickly.
0: And when you say food tech media, what are they defining in there in terms of the, that the bundling of that investment?
2: So food tech media is something that uh, we work with uh, Britta Rosenheim uh, to uh, track, create a, a Lumiscape for the food tech media space. Um, and we do a monthly roundup of all the investments, the acquisitions, and um, the partnerships. And so food tech media include. it's kind of a, a very loose definition. <laughs> Um, but uh, it includes anything from e-commerce to uh, management system, restaurant management. Um, it's marketing. It's any kind of food media platforms. Um, it's some health stuff. It's a lot of uh, it's, a, it's a lot of consumer-facing um,
0: technologies. Cool. Well, let's um, let's jump on what we were talking. Chris started mentioning, and and Alan picked up on, which is. Um perishables and grocery delivery, and what wouldn't you order online? And I have to tell you, the first time I got live lobsters delivered after ordering online, that was kind of fun, um, made, made the recipe a lot easier than having to go out and get them earlier. Um, but that investment's at a five-year high. You've got plated, but you got blue apron, boxed now, you know, I would say Amazon jumping in the game, but and also sort of think about it, how Is it such a vast market that, you know, the the opportunities keep increasing? What are your thoughts? Uh,
3: I think it's a really hard space to play in. I mean, I think there's probably two sides that you could take to it. One is that um, consumers have gotten over some hurdle about, like, ordering fresh food online. And in the past, that had sort of been a specialty business. You know, like, sure, Omaha Steaks has been around forever, and people are ordering on an 800 line and then a website. Um, but they weren't really ready for it. I mean, you know, it wasn't that many years ago that Guilt Group launched Guilt Taste and then shuttered it, presumably because it wasn't hitting its performance targets. And I think, I think the thing that's really interesting about buying perishable stuff online is I think there's a quality hurdle, and it's like, what am I going to get? How good is it going to be? What does it mean if I can't see it or touch it? How do I have trust in the brand that's giving it to me? And what does that look like? Um, And it's interesting to see how different people are attacking that quality problem. So, you know, it's like you've got uh, Instacart is partnering with brands that you know, where you kind of know what you're gonna get um, for home delivery and then Plated and Blue Apron are going at it in a totally different way, which is we're going to curate this extremely heavily. You're only gonna have a couple options. And like basically our brand equity is dependent on whether we're actually doing a good job or not. And and I think, you know, for the Playdates and the Blue Aprons of the world, like the, the question is, how big can they scale with that approach? And then at what point do they have to start offering more and more stuff, and what happens? Versus the partnering with people that are doing more of the ops on the ground, like the Whole Foods and the Costco's, which is like the Instacart approach, and there's a bunch of things like that in the UK that already exist. Yeah. Um, or Box that saves us from going to Costco. Right. Or, or <laughs> Box that saves you from going to Costco.
1: Right, but I think, I think those are sort of two, the plated and blue aprons and the uh, Instacart and boxed. Uh, I think those are two different different uh, business models because the Instacart and the boxed and uh, Google and Amazon, they're, they're, for the most part, at least starting with a lot of uh, packaged goods and, you know, obviously some, some fresh produce versus somebody like uh, Blue Apron or, or, or Plated that is actually has a, a, a menu or something that you can, you can order. But, you know, for example, uh, Boxed, one of the very interesting things about Boxed, when I first heard about it, I go, oh, my God, like everybody, I thought, this is a Costco killer. Turns out that Costco is selling them the product. Because, you know, first, you know when I first thought about it, I thought, how can Boxed be getting directly from these manufacturers with the kind of volume that they're doing, the kinds of deals that are needed for that special packaging. And it turns out that Costco's doing it. Costco's selling it to them. And that's also a reflection of what's going on in the industry is that all these packaged food companies, all the big food companies, they're not just sitting around anymore. They get it. They know that you know there are big changes and they're all trying to figure out how are we going to, be part of these big changes. And they either are partnering with different uh, companies, either they're doing incubators, they're trying to develop it internally, they're doing business plan competitions. It's really, really exciting.
3: And I think just to piggyback one more comment on that, I think there's an interesting question about like the perishable stuff versus things that have SKUs, right? So it's like a lot of the people doing delivery are working with Products that have SKUs that are easy to inventory, that are easy to track. Who's actually selling them? So that, like, from a merchant perspective, you can say, "Oh, this item with this SKU went from our factory to Costco to boxed to the consumer." And I think one of the interesting things about you know Blue Apron and Plated is like you can order something on Plated where like they literally send you a clove of garlic that has no SKU, and um, that's kind of interesting because that, that piggybacks on stuff that's happening in Europe you know, where like, you can do the same thing through ordering at Tesco um, where you can order things that don't have SKUs. You can order like three strawberries, and it, but you can. They show up in like two hours.
2: And the funny thing is that... so
0: Other than ordering three strawberries
2: <laughs> or a clove
0: of garlic. Yes, sorry.
2: So investment really started pouring in towards you know the middle of last year. Before that, it was so difficult as an entrepreneur to raise money in this space, and the reason was because most investors, as Alan was saying earlier, didn't ha- don't have domain expertise. They didn't really understand food, and food's very complicated. And then the food people didn't really get the tech side of it. So you were sitting in this really really weird space, and all people could say whenever they heard any food concept was a web van. (laughs) (laughs) know, failed,
0: failed tech startup. Yeah,
2: Yeah. an online grocery. But now in in addition to, you know, delivery, restaurant delivery, it's one of the hottest spaces. And I think that uh, it's, there's a a couple of things to add on to uh, what uh, Chris and Alan have said. Number one is that the, people are getting smarter about distribution. So a lot of people are playing around with, um, with pickup models. So rather than having to deal with a last mile issue where you know, it's really inefficient to get the food to people's homes, especially when you have population density in New York, it's easier. When you're spread out in a suburb, it's more difficult um, to do that. So people set, are setting up pickup spots where you can go and you can order it and go pick it up and then it becomes a community event. Um, the other thing is that people for investors all of a sudden you see that Amazon is getting ready to, you know, roll out and drone drop your eggs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and move into other cities. So all of a sudden it's like, okay, well maybe and then the Tesco's of the world and Peapod, everyone's ramping up their operations. And so it's you know it's it's a signal that, okay, there, you know, there's the space is growing, there's lots of opportunity here. Um, and then the third thing is that there's people are more comfortable with ordering things online.
1: And, you know, the different uh, uh, distribution and the different ways that people are tackling uh, the last mile, uh, whether it be with, you know, sort of like an Uber-type network or their own or uh, just, uh, you know, couriers or centralized pickups or whatever, all these different models are evolving. And, you know, because innovation doesn't just, like, jump, it's sort of like evolves incrementally, and people are, are accepting things more and more. People are now getting used to these uh, different models and getting it integrated into their lives, whether it's picking up food at, a, uh, at, at their gym or picking up food or getting food delivered at work or getting food delivered, you know, at home. So, you know, people are, are, are consumers are getting more and more used to different, different delivery uh, systems and different ways of ordering and, and consuming food
0: well i personally couldn't live without fresh direct but you know that's that's for another another conversation um, chris so you mentioned in terms of you couldn't have started kitchen surfing 5 years ago without mobile um have you noticed since you've started kitchen surfing in terms of the idea and the reception in the market by investors to your idea cuz you've just had a successful
3: fundraise so kitchen surfing is a little bit special in the food space because we duck the delivery question completely. <laughs> we um, deliver the chef. <laughs> and but you no, know, but I think that that's you know that's important, right? Which is I mean, you know, when people when people are looking at like these new grocery models, there's a lot of investment pouring into the space, but like traditionally grocery has been an incredibly low margin business and the businesses are valued at low multiples to their revenues for all sorts of reasons. And you know, there's all these things that kind of go along with it. And I think one of the things that Kitchen Surfing has going for it is that we're kind of one of the, the few true marketplace or software plays like in the food space. And so what that means is, you know, the way that Kitchen Surfing works is we sort of take apart the restaurant and put it back together again in your house. So if you wanna have dinner with six friends, instead of going to you know, a wonderful restaurant like Balthazar, you could have one of the sous chefs from Balthazar come to your house and it would probably be cheaper than going to Balthazar. Um, And we kind of do that for private and home dining. There's uh, like catering type stuff that happens, and then there's food drop-offs and other things as well that kind of compete with prepared foods. All of those things can coexist on Kitchen Surfing, but we never take delivery of any inventory. Um, All we're doing is just kind of providing liquidity to chefs and getting them all kind of like in the same room, so to speak, uh, and allowing those transactions to happen. And that's a style of business that investors do know uh, and can look at from things like Airbnb to Uber. And if you can make it work, then it's an amazing business. So that that's kind of like our story and, and why people are hot on kitchen surfing. And
1: that, that's very different than uh, companies uh, that are actually uh preparing food in one way or another and then delivering it and what's very interesting is that even some some of these companies like like plated like blue apron like others that are using uh either decentralized kitchens or centralized kitchens or restaurants or whatever the the bigger they get and the more they scale the more they become like traditional food companies because all of a sudden they have to start dealing with uh, logistics, with supply chain, with, uh, uh, um, well, most of them have, have sort of sidestepped inventory because by using technology, they're able to sort of manufacture just in time uh, and exactly what they need so that they don't need to have uh, uh, inventory. But it's very, it's fascinating to me as I see these companies scale that, 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 the, the, that they start out as food tech companies And the tech side starts growing smaller, and the food side starts growing bigger. And some of the ones that I'm very involved with, and I'm investors, I keep telling them. I say, you guys aren't a tech company. You're a food company. You have all the constraints and the the issues of a food company.
3: You just need to do it better. But I have a question about that. So is Amazon a tech company?
1: Well, I don't know how much uh, a prepared food Amazon is doing. I'm thinking but, but, more but, about but companies not even, like Plated, I, like I Blue know. Apron. But,
3: but I mean, just in the fact that like a huge portion of their business now is like doing deals with people like the U.S. Postal Service and with UPS. And infrastructure and managing what inventory they have and what facility basically is their business, right? So like, there's a lot of tech that goes around that. I, like, sure, but I don't, think,
1: I don't think they are yet processing food. I don't think they're yet, you know, buying raw materials and doing something, whether it's just assembling them, whether it's cooking them, and then packaging them, and then having to deal with now getting it to the consumer. They're doing, I think, most of what they're doing is already sort of, you know, prepared, ready to go, and then they use the technology to figure out how to get it most efficiently to the consumer.
3: But, so then would you call them a logistics company?
0: exactly what I exactly. was thinking. <laughs> A very serious logistics company. Let's just on the funding issue. Um, crowdfunding is that affecting the food sector in any significant way? Yes, it's
2: helping a lot of small um, of food makers and 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 tech uh, entrepreneurs to uh, get seed funding for their um, concepts. And it's particularly, I mean, for a lot of people, it's great marketing, um, but it's but it's also You know a way to test your concept and to demonstrate demand to investors and so that's been really helpful and because of that there are tons of platforms that have launched um like i think at least over eight i mean there are just there are two dedicated crowdfunding platforms for the craft brewery industry two who knew i know and um, we're learning about new platforms that are coming up every day. So there's, and it's a mix of equity, crowdfunding, and um, just,
0: just like kick, like it was a like Kickstarter yeah, for food, and, so to right, speak. Right, I, and, those and kinds we'll of sites. Interesting. Okay, two for craft beer. There we go. Um, just thinking, the other market, which I think everyone is trying to crack across all sectors, is local. And. How is this movement being enhanced or inhibited in terms of local and food? How is that being enhanced or inhibited with technology thoughts at all
1: well i'm um I'm involved with uh, uh, an organization called uh, Slow Money uh, that basically works on sustainable and local food systems and we struggle a lot with what local means because uh, it 's a big country and um, uh, you know, local, everybody wants to help the local uh, economy, but it, you know, I think that um, the way I like to look at it is we try in many of the environments to stay local, but we don't make it like an ironclad religion. So, you know, I think you have to sort of moderate it and, 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 and try to be local for some, you know, like, I mean, for, for like, you know, fresh food, for produce, for certain things. But you can't, you can't, in my mind, you can't obsess about it. Although a lot of people do obsess about it. Yeah,
0: I mean, everyone's trying, like, trying to crack that, you know, local, we have to do, yeah, the, the local and technology, or I'm going to crack the local market. And, you know, you sort of hear it in everything. And, and you think particularly in an area where it's perishable and people do want farm to their table, how can, you know, technology speed this up or, or you know, facilitate it. Technology is really helping
2: a lot of small local businesses improve their operations and therefore improve their margins. And it and you know the way that I I talk to a lot of different kinds of groups of people um, and and I like to say that technology is leveling the playing field. So right now, for example, for farmers, you know, most big farms, most agribusiness farms, they're using uh, they all of their tractors have sensors and they're collecting data about everything. They have really expensive precision agriculture um, that's collecting you know all kinds of of data to help them inform their decisions. And now a lot of people are coming up with applications and cheap Arduino sensors and things to give the same tools to farmers so that they can better understand and better predict and forecast and then better capture. Um, and, and share data about what their yields are, and you know, and then it makes it easier for people to source from them because, because it's all uh, it's all been digitized. You know, and the same thing is true for um, restaurateurs and with have, being able to have less, um, more flexible POS systems that help with planning and you know with management. And so I think that it's doing technology is doing a lot for uh, local.
0: Just in terms of, and it's just all a question of adoption and, and how quickly people will pick up this technology and and decide to apply it.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's so the technology is only, you can have the, the best technology, but it's only as good as the people that are, are using it. And I think that we had this, the first wave of food tech companies were, had you know, you either had people that were coming from the food space that didn't really get technology or you have people coming from the technology space that were that said, you know, they didn't really understand food, but they saw problems and they wanted to solve them and so their hearts were in the right place, but they weren't really designing things for their users. And I think that that's starting to change and people are starting to really design things that are, you know, user friendly and accessible and, and that's that's getting people to be m- much more engaged and, and adoptive of the technologies.
1: Uh, you, you touched a little bit upon uh, a, a little bit of uh, a, a sort of a, an area in food tech that's coming up uh, and getting a lot of uh, attention, uh, which is ag tech. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, across the country, as, as people uh, are become more and more conscious of wanting uh, the kind of, Sustainable and local food—you know, a lot of small and local farms are getting revived, and you've got a, a younger, a new generation that that is tech-enabled, that is not adverse to tech, that is looking for new tools. That that's coming on, and you know, uh, I'm seeing more and more uh, ag food ag, food, uh, ag tech uh, deals coming on and people again, just sort of a little bit, it reminds me a little bit of almost like what food tech was a year or two ago. You know, all the, you know, people, a lot of investors were sort of saying, no, 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 it's not, not for us, but now more and more people are starting to uh, look at using technology to help improve uh, uh, farms and to sort of fight against uh, big, ag and uh, and try to stay local and more sustainable
3: sort of preserving the family farm so
1: bringing it back
3: bringing it back do you think do you think that those things are in conflict a little bit I'll be the anti-technologist for a second <laughs> <laughs> which is that that you've got like you've got trends that almost seem like they're slightly in conflict with each other happening right it's like you've got CSAs still growing really fast you've got people wanting to do the whole permaculture Joel Salatin style of agriculture But then you've also got a consumer culture at the same time, which is being habituated by technology to get whatever you want, whenever you want it, which is like sort of the opposite of let's respect the growing seasons, let's rotate the crops, let's do that thing. Um, Like, how do those things, how does that get played out? Well, I I don't
1: really see CSAs as ag tech. What, What I'm talking about when I talk about ag tech is, for example, a company uh, that we're we're looking at at the New York Angels, which is a company that is uh, helps farmers uh, understand uh, how much nitrogen they have to add to uh, to the soil and it's, uh, coming out of uh, a Cornell that has done years and years of analysis, and they have very complex algorithms. And so basically it serves two purposes. number one, the uh, the the farmers who traditionally add nitrogen to the soil based on rule of thumb, Invariably, add too much, and that gets run off. And it's a expensive for them, and b bad for the uh, for, for the environment. So, by using these kinds of uh, uh, of tools, they can farm more profitably and efficiently, and in a, in a in a better ecological way. That that's the kind of tools that I'm talking about, not necessarily right. but, consumer to right. farm tools. But
3: but, ulti- but ultimately, getting local farms to actually work as businesses is about figuring out how to get them a price for lower yields mm-hmm. right, compared to mega factory farms such that they can actually make a living right, with whatever their labor force is. So whether that's you know, more yield per acre or whether that's less cost for whatever or whether that's higher price for consumers, like that's the math that has to be fixed for local farms to work.
1: So this technology company that we're looking at, which is a complete software-driven uh, model, Helps the farmer have a higher yield, higher, uh, yeah, higher yield uh, per acre at a lower cost, which helps sustain the family farm, which is in big trouble.
0: Which is a good outcome. All right. So before we get to questions, I want to ask one more um, because some uh, the other thing that Danielle and I had exchanging emails is sort of things, things to watch and other trends. Um, we've talked mobile tech wearables um, and other devices that are affecting food and tech. And I was particularly interested in the um, Israeli company, which has a flash drive size scanner that can determine the molecular makeup of food. Um, Like this to me in terms of being, you know, instead of asking, you know, if you have a food allergy, does this have MSG in it you could now scan? What other things are sort of... You know, in, in terms of you seeing these other trends, we think of wearables and fitness, but wearables and food, what other kind of things are you seeing that you're finding intriguing or interesting trends? Uh, there are a lot of scanners.
2: So there are a lot of food scanners. I think that there are three um, that are, have launched Kickstarter campaigns two or three that have been the Kickstarter campaigns. And that's really exciting and it's a really big problem for anyone that has a food allergy and eats out. Uh, so to be able to be able to test your food in real time is huge. And it's also huge for the restaurants for whom it's a really big liability. Um, so that, that's one um, big area. Then people are getting, uh, re- really getting into um, the, uh, into scales. So you see a lot of smart scales that are trying to seamlessly ta- um, measure your, uh, your food and, then, and all the calories and give you all this data about what, what you're eating. Um, so I think that that one is really exciting too. I mean, I think the big thing in the wearables and, and the scanning, you know, in the scanning in the hardware space right now is that people are just trying to figure out how to seamlessly collect this data about what you're eating, and then give it back to you. And health is a really big driver for that.
0: As soon as you said scanner, I had that vision of um, George Bush Sr. when he was amazed that grocery stores had scanners. But that just reveals my age and remembering these things. All right,
1: just let me Yo, add, jump, add in, one, jump in, one, jump in, jump in. One thing about the scanners. So I I I met with uh, SIOS, the Israeli company that does the. Uh, the scanner and you know, I was like thinking about it and, and I was saying, so are people gonna have like a little scanner and scan food all day? I don't think so. But you know what I think is this is going to a bigger trend besides the food for wearables for food, which is the whole smart kitchen. So maybe you have the scanner somehow in your fridge and you know, when you've got food coming in and out you 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 know if uh, the food's too old or if it still has any nutrients i mean there's a lot of things that are going to going to happen and i think that the whole you know smart device and and uh, is in the kitchen is going to be a huge huge trend
0: are those expiry dates on your food really real <laughs> or not the, the, the bottom <laughs> we'll be line the scan you, you know the we'll real be able key to scan is that
1: the real key is that the food is usually not going to make you sick but it probably has no nutrients left so you're just eating mush Right, So right. maybe you'd like to know
0: that. Maybe you'd like to know that. Yeah, different, different issue in and of itself. All right, let's jump over to Pablo. Raise
1: your hand. We'll bring you the mics.
0: Everything you guys said was really interesting. Uh, I'm looking forward to the hack dining that you're putting together um, now that I'm not in a restaurant and I can actually experience other things that I want to do. Um, one thing, and I know there's time constraints, we, we didn't talk about anything about RFID tags. Is that dead to you in your experiences, or is it just still too much in its infancy that it's not even on the table yet?
2: I would say, I mean, I don't think that it's in its infancy. A lot of people are using RFID tags. Um, well,
0: for those of us who don't know, what are our RFID tags? Um,
2: they are, it's tags that will enable you to track, um, to track food. So whether if you, for example, like if you had a actually, so like a smart vending machine, which is an area I'm really interested in, people are getting very creative with vending. Um, So if you wanted to be able to tell what someone had um, purchased, um, and you could, you track the items based on using an RFID tag, so it'll, so like you could open up a, you could open up a vending machine, take out what you wanted, and it would know that you had taken it because of the tag. Um, so I think that there's a lot of interesting applications and a lot of people are trying to to um, figure out um, how to incorporate RFID tags into food.
3: Just one quick piggyback point on that is you know I think new technologies developing is really interesting and it's it's interesting how they get adoption. and <clears throat> I think that one of the hard things about something like RFID or other physical technologies is that it's almost like a chicken and egg problem. It's like the infrastructure's gotta be there to be able to do anything. So then who's gonna spend all the money to actually put the infrastructure there in any way that makes sense? And that's one of the things where like the software world is very different. You know, It's like you can have something like Bitcoin that comes out and you can have developers going nuts over it and doing all kinds of crazy stuff on the web and normal people have no idea what it is and then all of a sudden it's integrated into every service. And with something like RFID, it's like, well, if you don't if you don't have readers everywhere, then what can you do? And so it, it, you, you have to have somebody that comes up with something really clever about how to use it before it ends up becoming more widespread.
0: Any chefs accepting Bitcoin yet?
3: <laughs> <You> know, it, <laughs> Just because
0: you mentioned the B it, word. It, it's
3: funny that you say that because I got an email about that early this morning about <laughs> uh, talking to Coinbase, which is like the Gmail for Bitcoin.
0: <laughs> there we go. Play for your, your chef on Kitchen Surfing with Bitcoin. Coming soon.
1: Hi, thank you for this panel. Uh, if you know, I, I'm enamored with the FarmHack group and the Young Farmers Alliance. Um, and I'd like to see more food and tech connection with Hack, kind of, that kind of ag tech, not, not just digital ag tech, because farmers generally know what they're doing. Um, so I, I don't know any farmers who over nitrogen their soil or use rules of thumb. They, they have generations of experience on knowing how to do this. I don't think that kind of technology, digital technology, would enhance their ability to make healthy food or nourishing food. Well, and uh, I also uh, don't want to uh, offend you because no, 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 you th- might th- have no, no, no. But no, no, no but I might it's, want it's, money it's, from it's, you someday. So. No,
0: no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, be nice to Alan. He's an investor. So on,
1: the, on this particular company that does the, uh, uh, the nitrogen uh, analysis, and actually nitrogen is is only the first uh, the first ingredient. Um, it it turns out that farmers um, are not always right because they don't have an analytical way of really getting it completely right based on the weather, based on the rain, based on the temperature, based on the crop. And, you know, this is not just a bunch of kids that are just, you know, came up with a simple algorithm. This is based on... Uh, years of work that was done at, uh, at Cornell, and this company that is now out there uh, raising money and, and is gonna be uh, p- putting this product out has done you know, basically strip tests where on a farm, you know, so that you have the exact same environment, you have a strip where they use the, pr- the, uh, the, the, the system and a strip where they don't use the system, and right now it's only for corn. Corn is the first produce, and it turned out that uh, using this uh, uh, company, using this this algorithm and this uh, model, they were getting anywhere from uh, twenty to forty dollars more uh, per acre, which is significant. And so, um, you know, a lot of these the the, the the farmers are looking for these kinds of of tools. Another example is you know Monsanto, which is sort of the evil uh empire in the uh, agricultural industry they they bought a company that you know last year uh climate uh climate corp that basically does basically uh, you know climate uh, uh algorithms exactly for this purpose so it, it really works. I mean, you know, I, I, I agree 100% what you're saying. There needs to be more technology for the farmers. But where I do disagree is that uh, the, the sort of the way that the farmers have traditionally, uh, especially the smaller family farms, they 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 traditionally don't always have the best analytical tools, and it's not only the farmers. It's it's in every business. That's that's what uh, uh, you know the whole digital revolution and being able to measure and understand things better is all about. And now it's coming to the farms.
0: Well, and I just I go back to your meat hack, um, Danielle, and and the, it was a very interesting experience with this hackathon where you had. Um, those with the greatest interest in the problem there the entire weekend, asking it to be solved with technology. And so in that case, the government of Vermont was there saying, this is our economy, this is our environment, this is our livelihood, what can we do to facilitate that you know, with technology. Um, And some of the things we didn't get into tonight, when Danielle and I were emailing, we're like, oh my God, we can't be here all night. But open source seeds, like just, there's all sorts of things, even if it isn't, you wouldn't even maybe bucket it in with food and tech, just, I wanna say, the the technology thinking and approach to tackling problems. and we've even touched on your area of expertise in many ways, which is data and how data is changing um, and, and open source of data with respect to the food and agriculture. How is that improving not only, you know, delivery systems, but food chain issues? Yeah.
2: I mean, we so we do a lot. Of, we do hackathons every year. Last year, we did this event that uh, Kelly was talking about called Hack Meat, where we brought
0: stakeholders.
2: <laughs> Together with...
0: This okay, just for the record, <laughs> Danielle throws the best hackathons. Best food at a hackathon at Danielle's. Just, I'm just saying. Um, so we brought stakeholders together with designers and developers
2: and entrepreneurs, and they broke down really big problems across the sustainable meat supply chain and came up with prototypes over the course of a weekend. And, um, and so, for example... Um, One of the challenges that that Kelly was referencing was the um, Vermont Niche Meat Processors Association um, presented a challenge around how do we improve communication between Farmers and processors because there's a there's, they have a very contentious relationship. Farmers are really dependent on processors because that's the only way that they're they can sell do anything with their meat. And yet, and there's so much that's lost in communication, and that is really it's really inefficient, and it it um, creates a lot of um, issues around um, traceability and transparency because farmers will send their meat to a a, a processor, and they won't know if they're even getting back their own meat, they won't know what, what the cuts are. And so one of the projects that came out of it, based on having farmers working together with technology people um, to co-create a solution that solved their problem, was a Wi-Fi enabled scale that the processors could use and it could capture uh, critical data about individual cuts of meat that could then be reported across the supply chain. So. What we do with these hackathons, and this year we're doing hack dining um, in June, that our goal is we wanna bring a new model of problem solving to food. And, we're, and we use the hackathons as a way to do that because we think that it takes getting everyone to the table to break down the problems and then think Creatively and in and, and a lot of in some cases using technology to solve those problems, and technology is just a tool. You know, it's just a way to. In my interest, when I when I got into this, was about knowledge sharing and information sharing. And you know, we talk about food as being a system, but it's and technology actually enables it to operate like a system. You know, you can see all the different pieces because it's so very complex. So that's where. That's what gets me very excited, and, um, and I think that there's a, a whole lot of opportunity for the kinds of things that you're talking about, and a lot of interest and hunger for it.
1: Hello, um, my name is Tiffany. Um, so I'm running a Kickstarter now, and even though people come to the site and they're like, oh my God, this is amazing, or oh my God, we need this, they're not pledging. So um, I didn't know if you had like, any advice when you're a startup, and it's just me, um, I'm doing the marketing, I'm, you know, up We're all saying, night.
0: So Chris, you, you've been there starting a company, you know, suggestion, suggestions or an advice when you're, you know, when everyone's ra- cheering and pom-poms, but you, get, you get, need them to get to action. Get <laughs> them, <laughs> Write the get, check. <laughs>
3: get them to vote with dollars. Um, you know, I guess I, the thing that I would say is, how clear can you be about what it is that you're trying to do? And what the proposed solution is or how it might work? Right. It's like the things that seem to do very well on Kickstarter are often things where it's very clear what the output of the project is. And just from what you're saying about your project, there's a concept behind it, which is, I wanna annotate data a little bit more richly around some of these things. But then the question is, well, what does that mean? And, and I think without knowing like, anything else about your project, I think that you have to make it so that people don't have to make that jump themselves that like you're kind of giving them that thing like here's what that actually means here's how it works and here's where the dollars go to make that happen.
0: So we, as we usually say as in- investors to startups it's it's you know you got to explain it so so your grandmother understands like somebody who doesn't do this like you don't like they get it that's you know um I'm usually not, and I'll have a resource for you when we when we finish the panel just to maybe help you with your your campaign.
3: Hey guys thanks this was great. Um, do you see any of the technologies or solutions being leveraged right now at the intersection of food and technology in the nonprofit sector, specifically dealing with um, like domestic hunger issues, for example, and if not, what do you think would be some of the most relevant applications to that space that currently exist
0: i 'm smiling I have a fourteen um, year old uh, mentee who's a self taught coder in um, Palo Alto, and one of her little personal projects. When I say she, she's got a number of projects, so in terms of the scale of things, this is one of her smaller ones, which was creating an app so that um, um, homeless shelters would know when they could people kn- knew when they could get delivery of food, perishable food, before it was going to be tossed out from restaurants and and um, grocery stores in Silicon Valley, because you know she was always just sort of shocked by this waste, but. Thoughts on things that's going on in the space?
1: I I was actually going to talk about that. Oh, sorry. No, 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 not that app. (laughs) But basically, uh, um, just recently, I've I've seen a wave of uh, different profit and nonprofit companies that are using technology, communication technology, combined with the new sort of uh, uh, models of logistics uh, to, to do just that, to start... Uh, picking up food that is not being used because, you know, I, I, I read some statistics like 30 or 40% of the food that is produced in the United States is ends up uh, getting thrown away or not consumed, which is, you know, I, I don't know if that's exactly right, but even if it's half of that, it's, it's a massive amount of food. And so uh, I, I've recently seen a couple of different uh, um, companies that are doing that, both, Again, profit and nonprofit. So I guess that's one example of 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 the technology getting trickled down to, to things that are maybe not completely uh, profit oriented, but more uh, 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 you know socially oriented.
2: Yeah, nonprofits are getting very tech savvy. Um, they're, so there's a great um, organization called Ample Harvest. Where you can, if you are a home gardener, or if you have a farm, you can um, donate some of your um, yield to a, and you can find a local shelter that um, is looking for uh, fresh produce. And um, there are, are, there's another organization that does that as well. Uh, and then you see a lot of of nonprofits that are using. Uh, Really active on social media, really, really active, and and um, doing lots of adv- adv- advocacy and uh, social campaigns.
0: Chris, any thoughts or comments? You're probably like me, thinking, "Oh God, this opens so many cans of yeah cans no, no, worms." I,
3: no, I, mean, I, I used to be very, very involved with nonprofits, so it's, this is like a complicated, like mental topic for me. But I mean, I, I think. Um, you know one of the things that the web is really good at is, is routing things, routing resources. and I think that that's probably one of the themes that you might have picked up on as we talked about a bunch of stuff here is like that's basically what a lot of people are doing in the food space now is figuring out how to route things, whether it's from small family farms and aggregating demand, or whether it's you know kitchen surfing doing that with chefs. Like, a lot of that going on' it's something that the web, it's very native to the web. And I think there's a lot of applications that fit really well into hunger issues, things that people can do with nonprofits. I think the hard part there is getting actually good technologists to work on those problems, Um, because a lot of nonprofits are basically marketing people um, that are just you know raising money to go try and do some stuff. So I think that like that's that's interesting as a set of problems. I also think um, there's a lot of really interesting education things happening, both with very physical things like getting kids to do like gardens in their schools, to things that are much more digital uh, about kind of health nutrition that kind of thing um where there's a lot of people doing a lot of pretty good work um and that's also really interesting to see because that you know to me and this gets to the the gentleman the professor's question earlier about sustainable food stuff is um, you have two problems there right one is the like what's the economic model or business model that can make it all fly uh for everybody involved and the other is what's the education piece for people to actually want these things um, such that that's the demand in the market. And it's cool to see people doing things where they're kind of working at that very early, you know, like six-year-olds.
0: So, I mean, is so that tremendous promise of technology that where there are people and economies and locations that so could benefit from this uh, and technologists, yet they're the ones without it. Um, so. Um, on that note, that was sunny finish to this, wasn't it, Kelly? I want to thank Pablo and I want to thank the Apple Store for having us here to talk food and tech and I've got an appetite now so <laughs> we'll, we'll call it a night. Thank you and thank you for all coming out.